IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. Uh, I'm the editor of several anthologies, such as Wastelands and the Living Dead, and also Fantasy Magazine and Lightspeed Magazine. And Lightspeed Magazine was just nominated for a Hugo Award, and so was I. And I'm David Barr-Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including The Second Rat, about a man who discovers that he can rewind time. The story originally appeared in the Canadian science fiction magazine On Spec, and also in MechMuse Audio Magazine. And today on the show, we'll be interviewing Mary Roach, She's the author of four popular science books, including Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife, and Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex. And her most recent book is Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void, which deals with some of the less glamorous aspects of space travel. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Mary Roach. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so your new book is called Packing for Mars. Uh, what's it about? Packing for Mars is all about all of the surreal physical and physiological challenges of trying to live in space as a human being. And human beings are just, just not in the slightest bit equipped to do that. So it's uh, kind of an entertaining challenge. And it's also about all these bizarre uh, simulations that happen on Earth. Uh, kind of uh, weird behind-the-scenes uh, NASA shenanigans. And so uh, and I took part in, in some of these. You can almost uh, go to space without leaving Earth in a way. So uh, that's what the book is about. Uh, so all your previous books have one-word titles, uh, Stiff, Spook, and Bonk. Uh, Why did you decide to break the trend? Well, we didn't decide to break the trend. We just failed to follow <laughs> the trend. We couldn't come up with anything because I wanted something that suggested the human side of space. I didn't want something rockety. You know, I don't want orbit or <laughs> zoom or space. We really we really spent uh, an embarrassing amount of time trying to come up with something. Did you ever consider the title Pooping in Space? Because, I mean, just listening to interviews with you, the, the subject of pooping in space seems to come up an awful lot. And that, not my fault. <laughs> I do not bring it up every other <laughs> Well, we only have about five or six questions about it. Okay. <laughs> It's okay, because secretly it is a lot of fun to talk about. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so speaking of which, actually, um, I think most people think of spaceships as being really clean and sterile, but you make them sound pretty filthy. Uh, could you talk a bit about that? Uh, I, I spent a fair amount of time reading the, the Gemini 7 transcript, because this is, this is the very first time anybody had been in space for two weeks, and we were leading up to the moon mission and back in the 60s. And this was a mission where the, one of the things they were looking at is just how – revolting and gross and unhygienic does it get uh, to be in this little capsule and sleeping in your spacesuit without a shower, crapping in a bag? Uh, is it beyond the tolerance of a human being? And so um, I interviewed Jim Lovell, you know, the Apollo 13 guy. I wasn't interested in Apollo 13. I was interested in Gemini 7. And he, uh, I asked him about some of the, uh, the, the yuck stuff. And, and like, like dandruff, I brought up, because when you don't shower, uh, all, all the cells that you exfoliate, they don't get washed down the drain. They just accumulate. You tend to get dandruff. And I asked him about that because in zero gravity, the dandruff doesn't fall mm. to the floor or to your shoulder. It just sort of floats. And um, I asked him if it was sort of like a snow globe in there. 
Um, but elsewhere, I saw someone interview him, and he said it was like living in a latrine. Hmm. But uh, yeah, and Lovell said that the uh, they had some problem with the the urine containment system, and so you know it, he uh, had a comment in the mission transcript somewhere that um, they were doing a urine dump, but he said. Not very much, though. Most of it ended up in my underwear. <laughs> Actually, speaking of urine, uh, you know, there, there's a part in the book where you're talking about, um, you know, a comment one of the astronauts makes about uh, about how amazing the view is. And, and it's sort of like unclear whether or not he's talking about the Earth or the sort of crystallized urine that was being, um, you know. Yeah, I read in, in at least two memoirs this description of when they uh, when they eject the, the liquid urine, it sublimates and if it, 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 it like if it, the sun is hitting it it's this sort of beautiful uh, i mean I'm, i haven't seen it myself but it <laughs> sounded like this sort of you know almost like fireworks or sort of this sparkly beautiful thing and they would remark on how beautiful <laughs> this was uh so what sort of physical attributes do space agencies look for when selecting astronauts uh it, it, what they look some of the physical attributes are kind of entertaining like in 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 um Japan, I asked, uh, I was talking to the flight surgeon about sorts of things that would disqualify you. And he said, if you snore a lot, Hmm. that would disqualify you because it will wake everybody up. Uh, I also remember reading that in the Chinese space agency would disqualify someone with very bad breath, not because it suggests that you have some problem with tooth decay or gum disease, but because it would be unpleasant for the other astronauts. (laughs) And, and there's this, there was this whole thing sort of for similar reasons where they kind of looked at digestion, right? There was, yeah, there was, a, I found this study, it was, it was, a, it was a, a conference, 1964 conference on nutrition in space and related waste problems. And one of these guys actually suggested that one of the things NASA should consider is what type of intestinal bacteria the person had because if you, not, not because of the smell, mind you, but because if you produce methane, uh, methane is is explosive and, and and hydrogen as well. I mean, most everybody produces some hydrogen. But the, the, one of the things they should look at is how much of your flatus is explosive. And, and it, <laughs> there's some people who have more explosive flatus than others. <laughs> actually suggesting that this is something NASA might want to consider when they uh, – oh, here's another great one from that same conference. I just think people must have been high at this <laughs> conference. But there was this one guy who said – Rather than launching all this food, you could launch obese astronauts. <laughs> I calculated that uh, for 50 pounds of weight, that would be 184,000 calories that you wouldn't need to carry the food for. So you could just launch, uh, let, give them vitamins and let them live off their fat. <laughs> Well, I mean, like speaking of sort of odd uh, characteristics that you might want for a, a spaceship crew like that, I mean... What do you think would be some of the advantages to sending a crew of aging deaf-mute eunuchs into space? Aging, yes, certainly for a trip to Mars, because you're going to get a heavy dose of dangerous cosmic radiation. And uh, by the time you get the cancer, if you're 60 when you left, maybe you get the cancer when you're 75 or 80, and you're heading toward the end of your life anyway. So that would be a good choice. Um, And eunuchs, absolutely. Eunuchs. The way to go to avoid all the soap opera, avoid, you know, the falling in love and the anger and the possible murder and jealousy. Definitely uh, self-castration is, is going <laughs> to put you in a good, good position for a Mars mission. And uh, deaf mute, 
Yeah, deaf mute. I, you mean just so that you don't have to listen to the tedious babblings of your other crew members? Well, didn't you say that that would make you immune from space sickness? Did I read that right? Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's right. Yes. If you have an uh, um, it, it, inner, the inner ear is what determines uh, whether or not you're going to get motion sickness. If you've got, there, there's certain people who have, um, yeah, deaf mutes that frequently don't get motion sick because, it, well, I don't know exactly what the mechanism is, but they're frequently immune. So yes, that would be, that would be a good, um, yeah. That would make a good, that would make a good question to weed out, you know, who really wants to be there would be like, you know. That would cut, that would cut the numbers <laughs> down really fast. Yeah. It's like, so we're going to cast, we're going <laughs> to chemically castrate you before you go into space. Is that cool? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so, uh, you know, what sort of effects does weightlessness have on the human body, and how long can people last under those conditions? Weightlessness does a number on the human body. It it almost affects just, it's just about, you name an organ, something happens. If you're just floating instead of walking as a way to get around, your body starts to dismantle your skeleton and your muscles, figuring, you know what, I guess we don't need these anymore. Let's streamline things and use this material and use our energy more efficiently so that uh, you lose uh, bone. You become like an, an old woman. You, you, you're losing on a Mars mission. They've said from one third to one half uh, of a drop in bone density, which is pretty scary. Uh, of course, when you come back down to earth gravity, you would start to regain that, but not necessarily in quite the same way. And there'd be some um, places that would remain compromised. You also, uh, in zero gravity, you have less blood because what happens, all the blood floats up to your upper half of your body, not all of it, but you have a lot less in the legs. The sensors in your body that tell your body, you know, that figure out how much blood you have, think that you have too much because it's all migrating up. So you start, like you lose water weight, you, you, you lose weight, you've got a, um, you're immunocompromised a little bit because you've got just less blood your bladder doesn't work the way it's supposed to or the way it's designed to on in earth, on earth gravity because it's a it's an organ that works via stretch receptors so when the urine starts to accumulate on the floor of the bladder when you're standing up eventually that pushes the sides out your stretch receptors are activated tell your brain time to go pee well that doesn't happen in zero gravity because now the the liquid the, the urine is floating all around the organ it's sort of clinging by surface tension to the whole thing so by the time the stretch receptors are activated you might have so much urine in the organ that the urethra is pressed shut and so anyway they the you could have a minor medical emergency involving an embarrassing call to the flight surgeon and getting out the catheter kit but there's also this the sort of space beauty phenomenon right the space beauty treatment, yes, that, that has to do with having more fluid in the upper half of the body. So your wrinkles are plumped out. Also, your organs migrate up under your rib cage more, so your waist is smaller. Your boobs are more pert, and your hair is fuller. Uh, what else? Um, those are the main components of the space beauty treatment. But the other thing to bear in mind is that the alternate name for all of this is the puffy face chicken leg syndrome. So... Uh, it's debatable as to how uh, attractive it actually makes you look. And then how long could you last uh, in zero gravity? Well, that depends on if you were ever planning to come back to Earth gravity. If you just were going to continue on in zero gravity, uh, you, you know, you weren't going to need your, your muscles or your bones ever again. Uh, you, you know, you'd be fine. You, you're, you're, you're basically evolved. You're, 
not evolving, but you're, you're adapting to that situation. But the danger comes when you return to earth or like say you were in a, a situation where the capsule splashdown didn't go right and you needed to get out quickly. Something was on fire. You know, you're trying to jump down out of the capsule and run away uh, and you've lost a third of your bone mass. That could be a dangerous thing. The other thing, uh, though, when you come back down from space, you're not going to be so much worried about your bone loss as, as the fact that you, when you've been up there for six months or more, you then have to completely readjust to the, what's going on with your vestibular system. So you're dizzy. You know, that's, it seems like everything's spinning around because your little bones in your inner ear have, have adapted to weightlessness. So now you come back down and you're like sick and disoriented all over again. It's called earth sickness. And you can't, you know, you haven't had any weight. Your, your legs and arms and limbs haven't weighed anything for so long that you literally forget how to use them. That's what I was told by one of the ISS space station astronauts. Uh, so since you, uh, since you wrote Packing for Mars and you wrote, also wrote a book called Bonk, which is about sex, I feel like we should ask you about sex in space. Um, so, like, what was it like doing the research for that aspect of the book? Oh, it was very, very entertaining because uh, I, I spent some time in Moscow in Star City where the cosmonauts train. And cosmonauts tend to be pretty down-to-earth guys. But, you know, that's, a, that's really the whole really, really <laughs> adjective for these guys okay they tend to be pretty earthy all right they tend to be straightforward they're they they're um they're funny you can ask them anything so i asked this one guy alexander levakin i said so you know two guy you guys you were up on mirror two guys for six months you, this is, you were a young healthy man then wasn't that I mean, what do you do about libido what do you do about sexual urges is that um is that a, was that a problem and he said that um he said, Mary, people ask me this all the time. They say, how are you making sex in space? And I say, of course, by hand. You know, he's just very stupid. <laughs> yeah, of course, we jerk off. Uh, but he also, he said, and, and I had read this somewhere and thought that it had to be made up, but he confirmed, he said, the Institute of Biomedical Problems, which is the Physiological Research Institute for the Space Agency in Russia, they thought about sending up... uh what he he called it a mock-up, <laughs> mock a, a rubber woman, a, an inflatable, inflatable sex toys. Uh, and the reason they didn't do it is that Mission Control said, no, we're not going to work that into your schedule. We're just not <laughs> going to do that. <laughs> so, so in the book, you talk about how astronauts might want to eat their clothes and then fly home in a ship covered in feces. Uh, that sounds like quite a party. <laughs> I don't think want would be the right word <laughs> there. Uh Someone proposed that you could make clothing out of edible fibers and that the astronauts, when they were done wearing the clothes, presumably when they were dirty enough, that then they could actually eat them, which uh, <laughs> um, just sounded ghastly. Someone else suggested that components of the spacecraft that you don't need uh, on the way return could be that you could actually eat parts of your spaceship. They could be made of some kind of edible, I don't know, hydrolyzed protein that you would then uh just sort of tuck into on the way home. Um, the, the business with feces, this is um, a radiation um, protection idea that you would, uh, because hydrocarbons are apparently very good uh, at absorbing radiation. You don't want to, you can't like line the thing with lead. It would make it too heavy. So you'd use uh, water, food, feces. These, these would be um, add an element of protective layer. So you could kind of, um, you, you, presumably you'd have some sort of device that would, you know, 
plastinate them so you wouldn't be smearing <laughs> shit all over the interior of the spacecraft. You'd be making, and there is at, at NASA Ames, there is a machine that, that makes these, they may, it turns them into tiles and you would sort of tile the capsule. Okay. So, you know, so I write science fiction and I was thinking, you know, say if I wanted to write a scene in which an astronaut aboard a space station goes berserk and whips out a knife and tries to murder his fellow astronauts, you know, what sort of facts about zero gravity should I keep in mind when writing that scene? Uh, you, you know, you stab somebody in zero gravity, you're, you're going to kill them pretty much the way you'd kill them on Earth. I don't think there's any reason why, you know, if you cut an artery, you cut an artery. It, you know, the blood, the, the heart's still going to be pumping. It's going to be pumping the blood out just as it would in uh, Earth gravity. Would you have any trouble with, like, your body going backward as fast as your arm was going forward and sort of, you know, having trouble penetrating because you have no leverage to stuff like that? Yeah, that's the other thing I was I was thinking, you know, if you – because, you know, when you're when you're out on a spacewalk and you're trying to tighten a bolt, if you aren't in a foot restraint and you turn – you try to turn a nut – you will turn and not it because it's stationary. So, so you, you you have to have something to push against. So I was trying to think if that would be, uh, if you stab somebody, you probably there's going to be it isn't going to be the same sensation because you're not anchored onto the ground in the same way. So yeah, you might want to practice first on a melon or something. <laughs> and how about I mean, if you were to you know make a you know your first cut with the blood just then start coming out and just, you know, obscuring your view and stuff, I mean, or? Well, if you, you know, if you cut a, you know, you cut an artery and it would, and it, it, that, that on earth would be spurting out fairly aggressively, it's, it's going to, uh, it's not going to drop, it's not going to do the same thing. It's, it would just sort of start forming a, a sphere, a blo- you know, a blobby looking thing. Like showers don't work in zero gravity. The water just comes out and starts making a growing blob. Okay, and so how, how about like if instead of a knife, it was a machine gun? <laughs> you're now you're risking losing pressurization of your spacecraft, particularly because some of these things are, are well. Hopefully, they're made of like Kevlar or something quite durable. But uh, I, you know, I wouldn't want to try to use any sort of um, armor penetrating bullets because you're going to penetrate the spacecraft, and then you've lost pressurization. Everybody dies. You, you know, the kick, the kickback. I mean, you'd be you'd that, you know, it would be quite an interesting ride for the person <laughs> holding the gun as well, because it would sort of fire you backwards. But that um, reminds me of a, I asked an astronaut about, there's a myth that if you fart while you're in zero gravity, it works like a rocket propellant <laughs> like, to quote unquote, propel you across the mid deck. That's what, that was a rumor. And this one astronaut I interviewed said he didn't buy it. Uh, and he, and he uh, because he said, you know, the human lungs hold more than the average fart, more air. And when you exhale, it doesn't blow you back. And so he didn't believe it. And he, tr- he, I think he must have eaten a bunch of beans. He said he had a real voluminous and rapidly expelled purge. Those were his words. <laughs> and he said, I failed to move noticeably. So you cannot, according to him and other people, you know, there's a debate amongst uh, people that I've talked to. But he said, no, he tried it. He, he was wearing pants, though, because it was a mixed gender flight mission that is and he i hope he would wear pants anyway but. <laughs> yeah but he thought that that the where the wearing of the pants might have interfered with the uh the the cleanness of the expulsion and sort of uh compromised his ability his thrust mm. so um not a valid experiment <laughs> yeah uh, but he has he 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 promised me he'd ask other people but i never heard that <laughs>
Do, do you know of, of any like like fistfights and things like that breaking out on on space missions? I have heard that cosmonauts have. I mean, uh, what, what what I was told when I was in Star City is that fistfights are they're, they they turn they had this term. It was a friendly fistfight. <laughs> like the fistfights are kind of how you settle things, and that it isn't a huge deal. That it isn't the same sort of a, a, a major um, altercation that it is here in the United States. And so I, I have heard that there have been fistfights on Mir, but I don't have the details. I, I just have heard that that is a um, it was somebody at NASA Ames told me that that's sometimes how they've solved <laughs> disputes uh, in, on Mir. Do you, do you know what they would do? Like, if, say, if, say if somebody was on this International Space Station and just, like, one person died and the rest of the crew was still there, like, you know, what, what would they do? Well, if they were in orbit, they could send up an orbiter like the shuttle and they could t- remove the body and, and bring it down, and, and, you know, not, and, and have the family could do whatever they're going to do in terms of a memorial service. Uh, when, it, when it becomes a little trickier, you say you're on a Mars mission. Mm-hmm and you're on the way to Mars or you just got there or you've just left to come home, it's an eight month trip. What are you going to do? And there is actually, I saw, uh, I uh, posted this. I mean, I did a guest post on Boing Boing, the website Boing Boing Mm. about there's a device and it is just a, it's, there has not been a prototype built, but there's a, there was a paper that was done jointly with NASA and these folks that I, met when I was doing stiff that have that freeze drying and composting method in Sweden. And they came up with something that would, you know, basically you put the body in the airlock, you know, freeze it solid, and then it would vibrate it into small pieces. And then kind of this, it would be in this little pod, this powder, and then you would just basically pull it behind the spacecraft until you're re-entering earth atmosphere. And then to keep it from pre-cremating, you would bring it back on board. And then, you know, when you land, you would, present it to the family. It would be in a sort of small, something that could be carried by two people. Uh, um, I forget. It was called Body Back. That's the name of the system. Um, Okay. So, uh, so, uh, you know, Dave and I are both, uh, both work in science fiction publishing. So, uh, you know, uh, what are some of your favorite science fiction books and movies? Oh, I loved uh, THX 1138. I want to see that again. Uh, I love that's that. That was Spielberg's first movie, wasn't it? Oh, uh, Lucas. Lucas. Yeah. Lucas. Lucas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just recently saw Moon, mm-hmm. Sam Rockwell, uh, which I I liked a lot. Um, I'm a fan of uh, Ray Bradbury, although not so much the space stuff. I like some of the stuff like that weird one where the the guy gets his skeleton pulled out through his mouth because this <laughs> woman who has her, you know, her hair falls over her face in this sort of sexy way for the whole story. Turns out it's hiding this hideous mouthpiece, mm. which comes out. Um, and the Velt, I love that short story, Bradbury short story. Mm. The Red Red Mar, what's that? Uh, the that trilogy, the um, yeah, the Kim Stanley Robinson. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I read the the red one was pretty impressive in terms of its accuracy. Just it seemed like a really sort of accurate scenario for the second for the psychological as well as the technological stuff. That's that that was pretty cool. Two thousand and one, obviously, I love. What, what, um, yeah. So go ahead. Well, was there anything um, any sort of big misconceptions you had from watching movies about astronauts that um, you know doing the research for this book you know came it came as a big surprise yeah. to you. I had no idea until I started this book that when you're heading to the moon or to Mars, you're essentially 
coasting. I sort of thought and, and thought it was like a car where you'd have your foot on the gas <laughs> the entire time. And I used to think, Jesus, that's a lot of gas. How do they <laughs> how do they do that? I didn't realize, you know, the initial blast uh, propels, you know, you get escape velocity. And then you, you're just coasting because there's, you know, there's no air resistance, nothing to slow you down. So you just uh, keep on coasting all the way. That was, that just was amazing to me. And for some reason, maybe cartoons that show exhaust coming out of rockets. I, uh, I had this misconception about uh, how, how rockets worked. I mean, I mean, that's really basic stuff. I'll show, it shows you how completely <laughs> ignorant I am at the start of every book. <laughs> When you were talking to like NASA employees and you know astronauts and whatnot, did you, did any of them ever talk about science fiction? I do remember seeing there is a list of all the books that are on the International Space Station, and there's a ton of science fiction. I should send you that list. Uh, I have it somewhere, but if you remind me. Um, but but yeah, but there were there were a lot of science fiction books up there that, that people are reading. So clearly, it's it's popular stuff for uh, for astronauts. Well, that's what we like to hear. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, are there any other um, are there any other recent or upcoming projects that you're working on that you'd like to mention? Oh, I am working on a new book, but I'm I'm keeping it under my hat for now. I mean, so like, if someone is a big fan of your books and they want to sort of get into doing that sort of thing themselves, do you have any advice uh, for you know how they would get started in that? Well, these days, one of the, the things that um, agents say is that uh, if you have a a following in either a, a, on a blog or Twitter or some other social media that you have a built-in audience that's already sort of eager to hear what you have to say or read what you want to write. That's a huge advantage. So I counsel people to um, to undertake something like that, either building a Twitter following or writing a blog. A lot of science writers have pretty you know pop- fairly popular blogs now, and and that's a really good stepping stone for a publishing book publishing career. I mean, I didn't do it that way because when I started out, there really wasn't any of that, but, uh, and it's not to say that you have to do that, but that definitely is something that agents and publishers are eager to see. So, I mean, if people want to find you online, like what, what, uh, how should they do go, go about that? Oh, they can find me on uh, maryroach.net is my website, but um, also uh, the Twitter. I'm, I'm on Twitter at Mary underscore Roach or underline Roach. So um, that's those are probably the two. There's a Facebook site too, but I, I'm not on there very much. Uh, so those are the two best ways to keep in touch. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Mary Roach for joining us on the show. Okay, and, you know, since Mary's book is all about sort of the, uh, you know, some of the unpleasant things that might happen to you in, in outer space, I thought maybe for our discussion today we would talk about sort of creepy, awful things that happen to characters in stories uh, in spaceships and on space stations. So, you know, sort of the, the first thing along those lines that kind of comes to mind for me is uh, Ridley Scott's Alien movie mm-hmm. and its sequels. You know, these movies all came out before John and I met. Um, so I don't know if we've ever really talked about, about them before. So I was just kind of curious, John, you know, what's kind of your take on those four alien movies? So. Uh, well, if you're talking about four, I, I, I'm not actually aware that there are four. <laughs> There's only two. Um, uh, the, I mean, the first two are great. I mean, I, I actually prefer aliens. The second one, uh, the, the James Cameron one, uh, I, I prefer that to the original, um, which is a, you know, pretty rare, rare thing in movies that the sequel uh, can surpass the original. But, I mean, both the first two are great, um, you know, really terrific uh, meldings of horror and science fiction um, in, a, in a way that I think probably hadn't really been done before. 
um, at least not in film. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. And as I sort of alluded to in my initial comments, uh, uh, you know, three and four are just abominations. <laughs> I mean, I I, uh, I don't remember three very well. I mean, I remember not. I remember thinking it was bad. Um, but I mean, I saw it fairly young, and uh, you know, I haven't rewatched it since. Um, Alien Four, I remember better because I was older when I saw it, and uh, I, I just, you know, I remember how much I hated it, and uh, you know, it's a shame because it had what you would think would be good talent associated with behind the scenes. I mean, Joss Whedon wrote the screenplay, and um, I don't remember the director's name, but the the director was this French director who directed like City of Lost Children and Delicatessen and and a lot of you know, highly regarded uh, science fiction films. And, and I mean, you know, on the surface, it kind of seems like a ridiculous pairing. I mean, in that this guy's this, uh, he's an auteur and he's being hired to direct Alien 4, you know, and it's like, I, I don't know if he really got it. I mean, maybe, maybe there was a language barrier or something, but uh, yeah, that was pretty terrible. But no, I, you know, because I, I definitely watched Aliens. I mean, I, I've watched Aliens many, many times. And, you know, the original Alien was sort of before my time and I, I kind of went back and watched it later. Sort of one of one of the things that strikes that I, I remember most vividly about about those movies is that you know my you know my parents are are scientists and science fiction fans and they had a lot of friends who were scientists and science science fiction fans and we were talking to one of my parents' friends and she was saying uh, that both Alien and Aliens were good. She well she said the first one was good and it was scary and the second one was good but it wasn't scary mm -hmm. and that just like blew my mind as a kid because it was the scariest movie I'd ever seen <laughs> you know. It was actually it was sort of like a, a milestone for me when I watched that movie for the first time without, you know, covering my eyes or, or mm -hmm. just being terrified, you know. And I can kind of see what she meant now because, you know, because the first movie is more of a horror movie and the second movie is, is more of an action movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's what uh, James Cameron, I, th I think I, I saw a quote by him where that's what he kind of said is he said he wanted aliens to be less horror and more terror. Um, mm -hmm. And another thing I really remember about aliens is that when I first saw it, uh, you know, there's this scene where um, there are the, they, they have these sort of automatic sentry gun things. And, you know, the aliens are trying to get in through this corridor and the guns are shooting them. And uh, the humans are all just kind of huddled around a computer and they're watching this screen that says how many rounds are still left in the guns. And the number's just going down and down and down and down. And just when the guns are almost out of ammo, the aliens give up and go off to try to find a different way in. It's always just struck me as just a really great scene that you can be so terrified by just some people watching a number on a screen, you know. Mm -hmm. But then later, you know, then I when the movie came out on VHS or, you know, when I bought it on VHS, then I watched it and that scene's not in there. You know, they cut it out for the VHS. And, and you know, at that time when I was younger, you know, it was I didn't really think of there being different versions of movies. You know, there was just like there's the movie and you bought it and you watch it. And so it, it just really like. It was just a weird experience. I was like, wow, I remember there being this scene and it's not in the movie, you know. Did I just imagine, did I dream that or something? But then later on, you know, they released, um, I don't know, I don't know, fairly recently they released a, a DVD with lots of scenes inserted back in that, that had been cut for, for various earlier iterations. I don't, did you, did you see that where they, they stuck in all this extra footage? I'm pretty sure I saw that edition. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't, I, I'm not the sort of person that, like, I, I would remember, like, all these different details, whether they were in there or not. I mean, like, in, except in the case of, like, Star Wars, where, like, I've seen those movies so many times, like, you know, every time George Lucas tinkered with something in the special editions and whatever, it was, like, glaring in my face, uh, <laughs> uh, annoying me to no end. But, um, you know, with Aliens, like, I mean, like, I've seen it a number of times, um, and, I, and it's one of my favorite movies, but... I, I can't say that I, I know it well enough that I would have spotted those differences. 
I mean, the, the most notable, noticeable change was that they showed you the colony on LV-426 before the alien attack. In the original version, you know, the, the Marines arrive on the colony and it's all destroyed. And, you know, that's the first time you're seeing anything. And, you know, in the, in the re-released version, you see like Newt's parents discovering the, uh, the aliens, you know, crashed ship and stuff. But yeah, no, I, I just think Aliens is, is so good. I think it's it's just really almost a perfect movie in terms of accomplishing what it sets out to do, you know, in terms of being a horror, science fiction, action kind of movie. Mm-hmm. For horror writers, I think one of the hardest things uh, has been uh, contriving scenarios in which your characters are cut off, uh, or, you know, are, are isolated or, or uh, um, you know, cut off from help because with the internet and cell phones and mm-hmm. everything, it's, it's really hard to construct a scenario in which the characters, you know, in which you're like, why don't the characters just call the police or, you know, find some people to help them because there's, because the, because the world is so interconnected and, you know, a spaceship or a space station really does offer you that kind of setting where, okay, you know, you really are by yourself here. You really are on your own here. But yeah, so, so alien and aliens are both great and uh, alien three and alien resurrection are badly, badly flawed. It's a real shame with Alien 3, I mean, because it's directed by David Fincher, who, you know, at the time, I'm sure I, I didn't know who he was. I wasn't really paying attention to the directors at that age. But, um, you know, I mean, he's gone on to direct some really great stuff, and including Fight Club, which is like one of my favorite movies ever. Um, so it's really it's really disappointing to look back and see that, you know, oh, my God, he directed an Alien movie, but it's terrible. No, but and apparently David Fincher is really unhappy, you know, with how that turned out, that there was all sorts of – it sounds like it was a complete mess. Uh mm-hmm. That, that, you know, that there was no script and, uh, you know, the studio was really interfering a lot. And, uh, you know, the script went through all sorts of rewrites. I don't know if you know that William Gibson wrote one of the drafts for Alien 3. Oh, did he? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, they, they were planning to do sort of Alien 3 and Alien 4 kind of as a big two-part story. And so they had Gibson write the first, you know, the first part of that. But then that ended up not being not being used at all. Yeah, because why would you want any input from an actual science fiction writer? I mean, you know, you hire him to do it, and it's like, oh, well, you know, this is crap. You know, let's let's get let's get one of these Hollywood guys to do it. You know, because they really know science fiction. I actually think, I mean, I've I've heard a lot of people say that Alien Three, as a sequel to Aliens, is a travesty. But if you just evaluate it on, if you sort of pretend it has no association with the earlier movies and just evaluate it on its own merits, that it's a sort of okay horror science fiction movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that just the reason people hate it so much is because, yeah, because, you know, because they, because they kill off Hicks and they kill off Newt. <laughs> I actually saw, you know, you know, George R. R. Martin was recently, uh, polled on his top 10 science fiction movies and he listed Aliens, I think, as one and said, you know, Aliens ends with, uh, Newt asking Ripley, you know, can we dream in the, uh, stasis pods on the trip back to Earth? And, and Sigourney Weaver says yes. And, George R. R. Martin says it would be nice if in, in Alien 5, you know, that they uh, they wake up and everything that happened in Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection was just a dream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one, one thing uh, that I thought was kind of interesting is that uh, on, on Wikipedia, I came across this quote and it says, uh, Ridley Scott had wanted, this is at the end of the original Alien movie, that uh, Ridley Scott had wanted the alien to bite off Ripley's head and then make the final log entry in her voice, but the producers vetoed this idea as they believed that the alien had to die at the end of the film. So... That's kind of funny if he had gotten his way, you know, that would have been yeah. That would have been the end of her right there. And so then okay, so then Alien Resurrection, kind of what's what's your uh I mean, one instance in particular really sticks in my mind is like, you know, there's a there's a scene toward the end of the movie where there's like 
some sort of abomination alien going on there? Like, I don't even remember what the situation was. Was it like, was it part human or something? I don't know what it was. Yeah, no, the, the ending is really, really weird. Um, well, yeah, and, and, it's, and it's completely disgusting. <laughs> I mean, it's like, because like the alien gets like sucked out through like a tiny hole in the hall or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, that's kind of cool, but it was so gross and just like sort of felt so gratuitous that it was like, like, why is this in this movie? And, and, and it's just like a horrible thing to watch. No, but apparently, you know, Joss Whedon wrote like four endings for the movie or something, and they they didn't use any of them. And mm-hmm. uh, the ending, I actually, it's it's a, it's almost cool in a way, but it it it's, it doesn't fit the movie at all. It belongs in like a Terry Gilliam movie or something. It's 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 so out there, but it's you know, uh, it turns out at the end that there's this alien, and its genes have kind of gotten mixed with Sigourney Weaver's, and so now it has a womb, and it doesn't have to have you know, face huggers and chest bursters and stuff. It can just give live birth to aliens spawn. And so it, so it births this, uh, you know, half alien, half human hybrid that kind of recognizes Sigourney Weaver as its mother. And then she kills it. Yeah. By throwing acid blood on the hull and then having its innards sucked out into space. Like alien resurrection is a movie. It's, it, I kind of feel about it almost like I do about predator two, where the execution is just really, really horrible. Um, but there are a lot of cool ideas in it. This, like the the stuff I I don't know. There's 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 cool scenes like where they they have the aliens sort of trapped in this uh, observation cage kind of thing, and the and the aliens attack one of them and spill so much blood that it eats a hole through the floor, and they all escape. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, uh, there's a part where the um, the soldiers are all trying to uh, you know escape in an escape pod, and they're all kind of strapped into harnesses and then an alien gets into the escape pod with them and they're all just screaming and they're all just trapped there. So stuff like that. I mean, there's, there's, there's cool bits in it. Um, it's kind of interesting. You know, I came across this Joss Whedon quote and um, I guess he's, he's sort of saying what I, what I was sort of thinking. He says, uh, it was mostly a matter of doing everything wrong. They said the lines mostly, but they said them all wrong and they cast it wrong and they designed it wrong and they scored it wrong and they did everything wrong that they could possibly do. Uh, and there's actually a fascinating lesson in filmmaking because everything that they did reflects back to the script or looks like something from the script. And people assume that if I hated it, then they changed the script. But it wasn't so much that they changed the script. It's just that they executed it in such a ghastly fashion as to render it almost unwatchable. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, all right. So, um, I don't know. I have a bunch of, I have a bunch of movies and a bunch of stories I wanted to mention. Um, but I guess you have some stuff to, do you want to maybe throw out? I always stick to movies and then get into fiction afterward. Okay. Uh, well, you know, there's a there's a movie that comes to mind. Uh, I don't I don't really recommend it. I didn't enjoy it per se. Uh, although there are cool things about it, but um, you know, there's Sunshine by Danny Boyle. Did you see that? Uh, I only saw the beginning of it. I you know I yeah. I well I, I rented it from iTunes and it's one of those 24 hour rental things. And I watched the first part and then I got busy and then it had expired and I didn't like it enough to rent it again or anything. Yeah, well, I mean, you didn't. I don't know if you really missed anything. I mean, you know, it's like. Like there are people who really enjoyed that movie, but like I'm, I mean, I'm not one of them. But um, there's there's like a spaceship that's being sent like to the sun to do something. I don't remember what the parameters of their mission are, but um, it, it has something to do with the fate of the world. And like you know, if they don't complete their mission, like the world is going to be destroyed or something. You know, um, and so that's cool. And and I mean, it's sort of set up in a good way. So it's like you know, oh well, you know, there's a lot of there's really high stakes here, and 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 you know, um, a, a spaceship mission to the sun that sounds cool, right? Um, and so, you know, uh, it, it progresses along that, uh, for a while there. And then like at some point, like something happens on the ship and like, you know, people start going crazy or something and sort of, so it sort of devolves into this like 
slasher movie and like I don't know it just it, it felt like it got completely derailed to me and but um but I mean it's definitely a science fiction horror movie uh so you know I mean if, if people just want to see every science fiction horror movie out there um certainly add, the, add one to add that one to the list but yeah if, if your iTunes rental expires don't bother <laughs> renting it again well no I, and as you're sort of saying I'm, I was actually having trouble coming up with sort of horror movies set on space stations and things that I can recommend unreservedly, you know, mm -hmm. all, all my things are kind of like, well, if you're interested in the subject matter, you might check this <laughs> one out, but, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, another one that comes to mind is, uh, event horizon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I'm, I figured you were probably going to mention that as well, but, um, I mean, again, that's another one where it was like, you know, God, it seems like it should be great. Right. But I mean, it's not, and then I haven't seen that one in a long time, so I don't really remember it that well. But I remember being really vastly disappointed in it. But I mean, it's it's again, it's it's explicitly trying to be you know SF and horror, like a blending of SF and horror. And uh, yeah, I don't remember. I mean, does it actually deal with black holes, as the name implies, or uh, what's the deal with that? Uh, well, you know, yeah, like you, I saw this when I was in high school, I think. Um, but the way I remember it is that there's this this ship, and they're kind of jumping through hyperspace or something, and and hyperspace somehow involves uh, sort of a detour through hell and demonic forces start taking over the, the ship or something. I sort of remember it being kind of a fairly good sort of haunted house in space movie for the first. Oh, yeah, right. That's exactly what it's supposed to be is a haunted house in space. That's that's like the premise. But for, like, for the first half and, and yeah. then the, the second half, I remember just being really, really cheesy with like the hell stuff and. I just remember, I think it's Sam Neill with like eyeballs in his hands and just mm -hmm. all, like people on hooks and stuff. I, I just I remember it getting really, uh, just really corny uh, in the second half. Yeah, that, uh, yeah and it, I mean, wasn't there like a lost ship or something? Like there was, wasn't there like a ship that got like went through hyperspace and was like lost for many years and then they discovered it and that's where all the bad stuff happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, wow, I can't believe I remember Sort of that. like a flying Dutchman sort of thing. Yeah. So that, yeah, so that, that that's kind of a, uh, uh, not a wildly enthusiastic uh, endorsement. Uh, another one sort of along those lines is Pandorum. Did you see that one? I didn't see it, no. I actually... Uh, it, it looked pretty bad, so I kind of avoided it. Yeah, I think it's like it's got like a 20 or 40% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. Uh, I actually, I thought it was enjoyable. I mean, if you go in with low expectations, it's sort of... Uh, it's got it's got a couple cool things. It's sort of... I mean, it's basically uh, the descent in space, in outer space. I mean... Mm. Uh, and actually, the, the Descent is really good. Uh, people should check yeah. that one out, uh, although it's not on a spaceship or anything. Uh, but if you like The Descent and you want to watch the, the Descent in outer space, you can check out Pandorum. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, pre the, the premise basically is that it's a um, sort of a colony ship, and a guy wakes up from cryostasis and finds that the ship is, uh, you know, there's has some, some disaster has befallen it, and uh, weird mutant cannibals are running around, and... Uh, he has to survive. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these movies, the ships are absolutely gigantic, and it's sort of like as as Mary was kind of getting at in the interview. You know, most real sh ships that we build, they tend to be really small, and there's not a single square foot of wasted space anywhere on the ship and, and stuff like that. And then in in a lot of these you know science fiction movies, the the ships are just you know like ten miles long, and mm -hmm. you know there's just these gigantic rooms, and it just sort of makes you wonder. Uh, yeah, what the spaceship designers were thinking, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, if there's one thing this ship needs is some gigantic empty tunnels for five miles, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay, and then just the last two movies I want to mention, you know, just as I was, like, trying to come up with horror 
set in space that I uh, I came across uh, that I have not I have not seen these, but one is Jason X. Huh. Was yeah, right. uh, I guess they uh, you know this is the um, the you know the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, and I don't know at some point they weren't sure what they were going to do with it, and they just figured that they would uh, make one set in the future uh, so that it wouldn't uh, confuse the continuity. I've heard it's terrible, but if anyone uh, if anyone tells me that they liked it, I might watch it. Um, and then there's also there are these animated um, films connected with the Dead Space um, mm. video games, and uh, you know if somebody tells me that those are good, I might check those out. Yeah, I've, I've not seen either of those. I, I also have heard Jason X is pretty terrible, but um, I never really ever considered seriously. I never seriously considered seeing it. But yeah, so obviously we're in need of some. If there are any good uh, good sort of horror in yeah, in outer space movies, uh, let us know because uh, seems kind of kind of slim pickings. But anyway, so let's let's move along to uh, you know to some fiction. Uh, see, John, you have some you have some ones you wanted to mention, right? I mean, the the big one to me uh, I want to mention is uh, the Cold Equations by Tom Godwin. Um, I mean, it's not your typical. It's not typically like considered a horror story, but um, but I mean. It's it's really uh, it's really emotionally it feels like horror in a way because uh, because of what happens in the story and I don't want anybody to tell you what it is because it's a great story and you shouldn't let it be ruined for you um, and actually uh, so you know I uh, I'm actually going to be reprinting it in Lightspeed in uh, July actually the reason I'm reprinting it is because uh, I bought a new story from a from a new author named Jake Kerr and his story is called The Old Equations. Um, in that story, um, also it's about a, a guy on a spaceship, and 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 some emotionally uh, horrific things end up happening. Um, you know, not to give too much away, but uh, there's actually another story almost along the same lines that uh, I published in Lightspeed um, in uh, in in October. Uh, there's a story called uh, "A Taste of Starlight" by John R. Oh, Holtz. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, talk about uh, yeah. Dave's read it too, so he knows what I'm talking about, but. Yeah, talk about uh, horror in space. I mean, that that's that's a that's a true horror story. And actually, uh, that was a story I bought. You know, just it came in on spec, and I bought it. And uh, and and because it was so horrific, I kind of thought, well, it might actually work better if I build a whole horror issue around this. So I, you know, so I did a I did a whole issue uh, in Lightspeed that that was SF horror hybrids. Basically, that's a story where um, you know there's a guy on a cryo ship. And he wakes up and he finds all the crew are dead and he's been woken up early. Um, and But there's not enough food on board for him to, to get to uh, the destination. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, he's, this, he's like the main scientist behind this project that will help people uh, at this colony that the ship's traveling to. So if he dies, all of them are going to die. So he's sort of put in this like terrible situation and it's about what he has to do, uh, what he has to, do to figure out a way to survive. Um, and it's a, it's a great story. Um, it's really horrific. It's very, very horrific. I mean, I, I would strongly caution anyone who has a, a weak stomach, um, from reading it, um, uh, without some trepidation, but, um, uh, you can actually, actually, uh, you can actually also listen to the podcast of it as well. We have a, a podcast, uh, narration of it. Okay. So the first story that kind of came to mind for me was this Arthur C. Clarke story I read when I was a kid called The Haunted Spacesuit. And uh, it's just about this astronaut, and he just sort of, it's a short story, it's a very short story, but he just sort of starts freaking out when he starts imagining that his uh, spacesuit, you know, that, that somebody had died using the same spacesuit, and now it's haunted, and he's sort of trapped in very close confinement with a with the spirit of this dead astronaut. And so then that just kind of made me think of uh, of this really cool story by George R. R. Martin called Night Flyer, 
uh, which is this really long novella. I guess it's almost a almost novel length. So so in that one, um, there's you know these these people uh, sort of book passage on this spaceship, and the captain uh, they never see him. He he stays inside inside kind of this uh, armored room, sort of a safe room aboard the ship, and he says that he can't come out to greet them because. Uh, I think because uh, his immune system has been compromised or something, and he's afraid he'll he'll get sick if uh, if he comes out. And so they uh, they accept that at first, but uh, as uh, as the story progresses, they they become more and more suspicious, and they start wondering if maybe the captain is dead and the ship is just uh, you know piloting itself and stuff. Um, but so so what what, tur- what it turns out though, this is still fairly early in the story, is that the uh, the captain uh, is that the the ship is haunted. And uh, the captain has locked himself in this room, and he won't come out because he's afraid of the ship. But he needs to uh, keep flying it around because it's his only source of income. Um, and uh, everything's basically fine as long as the artificial gravity is on. But once the artificial gravity gets knocked out, the ship is kind of able to move objects around through zero g and use them to attack the uh, the crew or you know attack the passengers. Uh, yeah, and so you know that actually reminds me uh, of a haunted uh, space station story. Um, there's a Robert J. Sawyer story called Above It All, um, which you can actually read on his website, um, which is sfwriter.com, um, and he has that and a couple other stories on there. But this this is one of the first stories I remember reading online, actually, because uh, Robert Sawyer is a is a writer who I discovered uh, fairly early on when I was uh, really delving into science fiction seriously, and uh, so you know, and, and the internet was still uh, sort of a fledgling thing at the time, or at least I was only getting into it at the time. And, uh, and, you know, Rob Sawyer was one of the first SF authors to really have a major internet presence. Thus he was able to secure sfwriter.com. Um, but anyway, so the story above it all, um, it takes place, um, on the space station on the Russian space station Mir, uh, you know, which launched in like 1986 and, and, uh, deorbited in 2001. Uh, basically, there's an astronaut or a cosmonaut on on Mir who kills himself, and I guess he was like the only person there. And so, there's an American uh, space shuttle mission going up into space, and so uh, this happens when they're in space. And so, Houston radios into the astronauts, and he's and they say, "Hey, you know, well, uh, we 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 have a little job for you. We need you to go pick up a body." And uh, so he he gets onto the space station and it's like really creepy. It's like, you know, there's droplets of dried blood floating around all over the place because it's like, you know, zero gravity. But I mean, it's pretty cool and creepy. And, uh, you know, it uh, it has it has some cool stuff about like, you know, actual space mechanics. Like it it kind of it feels pretty authentic. And then just one of another scene. This this is something, you know, I also I read when I was a teenager. But uh, there's a book called The Moat in God's Eye uh, by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell. Um, the, the, the part that's, that's really creepy that I really remember really vividly is that there are these, uh, aliens called Modis and they're extremely intelligent and they, uh, reproduce extremely quickly. And there's a part where they've, they've kind of, um, gotten onto, onto one of these warships and are sort of running amok and are just all over the ship, uh, and chewing through the wires and stuff. It's kind of like in Star Trek, the, the episode with the Tribbles, you know, they're just everywhere. And so the, mm-hmm. the human crew, you know, realizes that they're going to have to abandon ship. And so they, they get another a warship to approach and then they're all just sort of walking out and they're gonna i don't know, i think maybe there's like an a, a, a bridge or something between the two ships that they're all gonna pass through and so they're you know they're they're trying to be very, really really careful that no uh modis you know make it across from one ship to the other and so they're they're checking everyone you know every all the the crew they're all in spacesuits and they're all going from one ship to the other and then just at one part one of the guys realizes that one of these spacesuits is 
there's not a human being inside it. It's just all full of, of these little modis, uh, and they're all kind of like working in concert to make the spacesuit walk. And, and so he kind of looks into the face masks and just sees all these little, you know, sort of furry monster aliens in it and, and panics and starts shooting at it. And the helmet breaks open and all these modis just start flying off into space and stuff. Yeah, so then just the last thing I was going to mention uh, is this Star Wars novel called Death Troopers by Joe Schreiber. Yeah, I haven't read it, but uh, it sounds really cool. The, the, the premise, as I understand it, is basically a zombie plague breaks out on an Imperial Star Destroyer. I, it's gotten sort of mixed reviews. I've, I've been, I haven't been sure whether I should read it or not. If anyone's uh, read it, let me know, let me know uh, if you think it's good, because it's a premise that certainly, I think, uh, if done right, would, uh, would really, really be interesting. Oh, I guess there's there's one more thing I wanted to, to mention is uh, there was this story by Kiz Johnson called Spar. Uh, this is a really, really cool, really weird story. Uh, actually, you know, what, earlier when I was talking about how in horror movies, they always make the spaceships just these gigantic, uh, you know, things full of empty, dark tunnels. Uh, Spar kind of takes the opposite tack where uh, it's it's this woman and she's aboard this very enclosed little space capsule thing. Uh, but she's in there with this kind of... Uh, uh, I don't know, protoplasmic alien that's just attack, you know, that's just sort of engulfing her and sort of molesting her, and she's just trying to keep it at bay, and this just goes on and on and on, uh, and it's just very, very vividly described and uh, just very sort of visceral, and uh, I don't know, it's, it's sort of a, it's a very one of a kind kind of a science fiction horror story. Yeah, it appeared in Clark's World, uh, so it's you know that's online, so you can go read that. Uh, you, you can just pop over there and read that. Um, and uh, actually, I think it was it was nominated for uh, I think the Nebula and Hugo. It may have actually won both too. I'm not sure, but it, it was definitely uh, you know and reprinted in a lot of years' best anthology. So it's pretty universally uh, uh, agreed that it's a it's a terrific story. So definitely worth checking out. Okay, so I think we're gonna wrap things up there. Those are you know some uh, some sort of horror stories on spaceships and space stations that came to mind. If you have anything you uh, think we should check out or, you know, want to recommend to other people, post a comment uh, at io9.com. You can find that by going to our website at geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the, uh, you know, find the um, blog post for Mary Roach and click on that and it'll take you to io9. And uh, while you're at our website at geeksguideshow.com, it would really help us out a lot if you would click on the ads for our sponsor, audible.com, and that'll take you to a page where you could sign up for it. You can get a you can sign up for a free trial membership and get a free audiobook. And, you know, a free audiobook you might want to check out is one of our guest Mary Roach's books. Uh, all four of her books are, are up there, Packing for Mars, which we talked about today, as well as Bonk and Spook and Stiff. So, uh, you know, check that out. And another way you can uh, help support the show is if you uh, if you want to help spread the word. Um, so if you want to go to iTunes and you find, uh, you know, find the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, or if you go to our website at Geek's Guide, uh, geeksguideshow.com you you'll find the link to the iTunes store there um, if you go to our if you go to our iTunes page and you leave a comment um, or you leave a rating um, that would really help and of course if you uh, leave plentiful comments at io9 that lets them know that you love us and uh, you know any any other way you can help spread the word is also appreciated uh, I mean if you tell your friends about us or post about us on Twitter and whatnot um, that's another way you can help support the show all right so uh, that's our show so thanks everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you next time The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. 
To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.